Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message from Real Life Community, where we talk about connecting with God and others, growing in Christ-likeness, and sharing God's life with the world. My name is Sarah Comer, and I serve each week as Connections Pastor, making sure that you know that there is a God and a community that loves you and wants to go through the seasons of life with you. You can find us at reallifecommunity.org, and we would love to meet you on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you. I am excited today because... uh, because a good friend of mine has uh, found his way to Middle Tennessee, and uh, we are all excited about that. Um, I want to introduce you, uh, David Busick, um, who is, we're going to talk about a little bit about who he is, um, but uh, I'm also glad that David didn't come alone, that he brought the best part of him with him, and that's his wife, Christy. So we were able to have dinner last night with them, and it was just a great time. And I, I am excited to get to share you, to share David with you, um, because uh, he is a special person to me. He has been a pastor to me, a preacher to me. Um, I never actually sat in his congregation except for, I think, one time. And that was when I was working on my uh, master's out at the seminary, and he was pastoring a church there. Um, but David quickly became my preacher. Now, that sounds kind of weird, right? But uh, I would listen to him faithfully. Um, he was my running partner. He didn't know that. Uh, he put in a whole lot more miles than he realizes uh, in his preaching. But uh, let's just, this morning, let's give a good, real-life welcome to, uh, to Dr. David Busick. I wanted to ask him a few questions to just have an opportunity to sh- for him to share with us a little bit about his perspective. So uh, tell us a little bit about your family. I'd love to. First of all, thank you for the invitation to be here. Pastor Jeremy and Christy, it's a, it's a joy to be with you. I've heard a lot about you and uh, looking, been looking forward to this time. So Christy and I have been married for 38 years. We got married when we were 18 years old, and uh, we have... Uh, three children, we have five grandchildren, and we have one on the way. And uh, by the grace of God, all of them love the Lord, all of them are part of the church. And I'll just say uh, to those of you who having pastor's kids in your congregation, a big, big part of why I think our kids still love the church is because of the churches that loved them when we were pastors. So thanks for loving these P- these PKs that are here. Definitely. Yeah, I'll, I'll reiterate that. So um, Dr. Busick serves in a very unique role in the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, he is what we call a general superintendent. Tell us what that means from your perspective. Yeah, uh, it's first of all, it doesn't, it's not a military term. <laughs> general doesn't mean in charge. General means broad. And I think that many of you know that uh, the Church of the Nazarene is a global church. We're in 164 countries of the world, and we have uh, 2.7 million members around the world. So there's four different levels of the Church of the Nazarene. There is the local level, which is like what you have here. There's a district level, which is uh, the group of churches right here in Middle Tennessee. There is a field level, which basically for you, that would include everybody within the Treveca region. Then there is a regional level, which is uh, for us here, it's USA Canada, but we have six world areas. And then there's 
the general level, which has to do with six general superintendents. And uh, it's a very diverse board. Uh, it's a board of uh, one from Guatemala, one from Cape Verde, Africa, one from Mozambique, Africa, one in, from Germany, and two from the United States. It includes five men and one woman. So uh, among us, we speak, I think, about 10 languages. I speak two languages fluently, by the way. I speak uh, English and Oklahoman very fluently. Uh, but um, to be a general superintendent, first of all, I felt called to be a pastor. I've never felt called to be anything beyond being a pastor. I still feel like this role shapes the way I think about what I do. And, uh, but the, the easiest way to describe what the six general superintendents do is that we help to shape and guide and lead to be sure that the Church of the Nazarene globally is staying true to our mission, is staying true to our beliefs, and, and is serving the broader church uh, as, as our part to play in the Big C Church. Yeah. And so as a part of that, I, I've had the privilege of being able to see the whole church from a broad perspective. And it is a, uh, it's an incredible church. I, I know this is a little longer answer, but there are 30,000 denominations in the world today, according to Wikipedia. And out of those 30,000, there are somewhere around five or six, we think, that actually function like the Church of the Nazarene does when it comes to the connections we have globally. It doesn't mean that other churches don't have uh, churches in other countries, but the way that we're connected, the way our polity works, the way our structure uh, works, this is a very, very unique church in that way. So what happens here at Real Life really has an impact on what happens, say, in Costa Rica, or what happens in Costa Rica really has an impact on what happens in, say, um, Singapore. So it's a very unique church. Yeah. And having served on the mission field, I have a sense of that. And I, that's what I love about the Church of the Nazarene is we truly are a global family yeah. on a mission. And right. uh, I, I'm glad that you're leading. Uh, you and the others are, are leading. Uh, so do you have any idea how many of these countries you've actually been in? I was thinking about that this morning. I I think it's somewhere around 65 countries or so that I've actually had a chance to be in now. And how long have you served in this role as general superintendent? I've been in this role for eight years. Uh, we were, I was elected in 2013. Okay. So you've had a lot of travel in a very short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, which gives you a very interesting perspective. I'm sure not every church that you visit functions like real life. Um, and so right. I, I, here's a question for you. What's the most interesting thing you've ever eaten in your travels? Now, that's a great question. And if you come to the district assembly, which is in a couple of months, Christy will actually show you a bunch of pictures of some cool food. But I, I would say the hardest thing I've ever eaten is raw fish or sea cucumber or basically anything else that's crawling on the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> and the way that you eat that is, is you... Lots of soy sauce, and don't <laughs> chew, just swallow. Just swallow. Uh, I've also eaten, well, I've seen fish and chip gelato in, in Australia. That's a strange one. But uh, so lots of fun. You know, when you pray for our safety, 
<laughs> I don't take that for granted because not only are we in some dangerous places from time to time, but we're e eating food that I say, God, please let somebody be praying somewhere yeah. right now. Can we commit to praying for the Amen. food? <laughs> Amen. Um, so real life, um, some people would say this is a, this is a small church. How do, what, how do we make a difference in this global thing that we're a part of? First thing I'd say to that is, is that we have a size problem in, in the world. We tend to equate large with good, and, and I don't tend to equate that. You can be small and healthy, and you can be large and shallow, and you can be unhealthy and dysfunctional. So size to me is not the issue. Um, that's the first thing I'd say. The other thing is I would say is that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he always talks about small beginnings that end up becoming very influential things and powerful things for the kingdom. So I don't see this as a small church as much as I see it as a church that is, as long as you're leaning into what God's calling you to do, God will bless this. The way you help the church of the Nazarene is through your prayers, through your faithfulness to our mission. It happens through your giving, and it happens through your sending, not just to across oceans, but I see a lot of young people here today, people who are being raised up for ministry, people who are being raised up to be great lay Christ-like leaders in the world. I don't underestimate the power of a church like Real Life. Amen. I agree with you on that one. Uh, this year has been tough. Um, you have probably had a different perspective on how tough that is because you have a glimpse of you know this area that may not be struggling as much, and you have this area that is being hit so hard. Mm -hmm. In the midst of a year of such difficulty, has God still been up to things? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I knew you were going to ask that question, so I was thinking about it. And when we were singing the song, I think it was a song that, uh, she, she introduced as we really need this now. My, my phone texted, or my, I got a text, and I looked at it, and a, a, as that song was being sung, we lost another district superintendent in South America to COVID. And uh, I got a message this morning. South we have four or five of our key leaders in South America that are literally struggling for their life right now. Uh, it's ravaging South America. It's ravaging India. It's really interesting because you know, places like Middle Tennessee, we may not see the same impact as even other parts of the U.S., but it gets real when you're part of a global church and, and people's names have faces with them. So this has been an incredibly stretching year for all of us. But I've also seen in the midst of the obstacles a lot of opportunities, and one of the opportunities is, is that the church is rethinking what the church is. For example, when I drove up to this building, this isn't the church. The building's not the church. COVID has reminded us that you're the church. The people of God are the church. And we don't have to be gathered to be the church. We can be dispersed and spread out and be the church. So COVID's reminded us wherever you are, that's where the church is. We also know in the United States, for example, uh, we planted 100 churches or 99 churches this year in a COVID year, brand new baby churches that, that were established in, out, of, out of, say, 
78 districts. That's more than one new baby church per district in the United States. So the Lord has been at work. Yeah. But uh, there's one thing I don't ever want to go back to. We keep talking about what we want to go back to. I don't ever want to go want to go back to prayerless or just human effort churches. Yeah. I want our churches to be empowered, dependent on the Holy Spirit, and and remembering that the church isn't called just to keep the machinery running. Yeah. The church is supposed to be on mission. That's right. That's great. Um, who does God seem to be calling these days into ministry? Well, I, I know that a few, uh, a year or two ago, I, I ordained a 90-year-old woman mm. in South America. That was a blessing. She, she couldn't hardly walk, but she was as sharp as you can imagine in her mind and her spirit. God's calling, uh, God's calling young adults. And we have so many people being called into full-time Christian ministry right now. Our challenge is not to find the people. It's to find ways to equip them and train them and to get them the resources that they need. Yeah. So uh, God's raising up great leaders and probably is raising up some people right here. Yeah, I agree. All right, last question. How can we at Real Life be praying for you and Christy? It, it would first, thank you if you would pray for us. We, we do appreciate that. One of the advantages of being here with you is that hopefully you, you put now, you, you see some flesh and bones that are connected to names. Uh, pray for our family. Our family has some, uh, some challenges right now with some of our grandchildren and big decisions that are being made. I would appreciate you thinking of them. As far as uh, just from the U.S. <laughs> perspective, I think what you can pray for us as general superintendents is th the season of COVID has been exacerbated by other tensions uh, in the USA, and there's, there's the real temptation to be fragmented mm. and to be divided and to pick sides. And trying to help us find what is the holiness middle ground in the midst of all of the different voices, as yeah. you said earlier, that are calling us. Yeah. And help, how can the church rise above that to find uh, Jesus in the middle of that and helping us to know how to do the same? Okay. Let's take a moment and pray uh, before uh, we turn it over to you. Lord Jesus... Thank you so much for your church, and I'm not talking about the Church of the Nazarene. I'm talking about the church that has a lot of different signs out front, mm -hmm. but God, I'm thankful that we get to be a part of this church, the Church of the Nazarene, that is a global family uh, that is a part of your mission, and God, I just pray for David and Christy, and I pray that you be with them in their travels home today, uh, in their travels around the world in the, the days to come. God, that you would give them strength and safety uh, and you would numb their tongue so that they don't have to taste some of the stuff that they get to eat. <laughs> but Lord Jesus, at the heart of it, God, I, I know this man right here um, has, a, has a heart for you and he wants you to be Lord yes. in people's lives. So God, I just pray that you would uh, give them uh, wisdom and protection in the days to come. Lord, in your name. Amen. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks again for this opportunity. And 
I, I've known Jeremy for a long time, but I'm just getting to know Christy more and more, and man, they're a dynamic team. I think you know how blessed you are to have them here. It's been an unusual, it's been probably a challenge to, to come in a time where you're trying to get to know people, and then all of a sudden you're dealing with COVID-19, so I just think great days are ahead for the church, and I'm very excited to, be, to see how, that, how the Lord wants to do that. All right, would you take your Bibles with me, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 19, and I think it will also be on the screens. I want to talk to you what, what I think is a pretty familiar story from the life of Jesus, and I'm fascinated by this story because I think it has a lot of relevance for us here today and the situation we find ourselves in, and, and maybe what's needed most for the church right now, not just here at Real Life, but even around the world. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good, capital O. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Basically, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Good question. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. Lord, speak now through your Holy Spirit, the risen Jesus, who is alive and is actually present here right now. Jesus, we open up our hearts, our minds, and our will to you, and we say, speak. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus uh, here was teaching a crowd of people uh, about what was the most common theme of his ministry, the, the theme he repeats over and over and over again, which is the kingdom of God. And after the teaching was over, there was probably a large crowd. A young man lingered behind, and he stepped forward to ask Jesus a really important question. Jesus, teacher, what good thing must I do to receive or to get eternal life? What are the requirements? What are the commitments I have to make? What what are the conditions I have to meet in order to have forever life? It was an honest question. I think it was a sincere question. I think think this was coming from the very uh, soul of who he was. Who doesn't want to know an answer to that question? 
Now, before I tell you what Jesus' answer was here, there, there's a couple of things you need to know about the one who asked the question. First of all, the Bible says he was a young man. And I don't know for sure how old he was, but since Jesus' original 12 disciples were probably in their early 20s, maybe even John could have been 15 or 16 years old. Sometimes we don't think about the disciples in that way. But I'm going to guess that probably this man is about the same age because it, it, it specifically says he was a young man. So I'm going to suggest he was about 20, 21 years old. The second thing we know about this person is that he was a wealthy man. There's only one thing better than being a young man, and that's being a, a rich young man. So this is a guy who had some means. He wasn't struggling for money. All of his material needs were being taken care of. And in a society that Jesus lived, that was a very unusual place to be. Most of them would be very, very poor. That's the second thing we know about him. He was a wealthy young man. Number three, he was a ruler of some kind, which is to say that he was a successful person. He not only had some resources and some cash, but, but he had some power. He had some influence. I don't know, maybe he was into politics. Maybe he was a young businessman who was making his way up the corporate ladder. But, but he was a person who was in charge of other people. So he was a leader of some kind. He was a ruler. And the fourth thing you need to know about him was, was he was religious. Because he kept the commandments. He was, he was a moral person. He was an ethical person. He was a respectable person. So when you put all those things together, bottom line, simply say, this is a good guy. He's a young, wealthy, successful guy that has a lot going for him, who knows a lot about religion, and who is just an all-around good person. I don't know you well, but I would, I would think that that's probably a lot like you are. Some of you are really young. I mean, if you've never put a stamp on an envelope, if you've never used a phone that was connected to the wall, if you think vanilla ice is a drink at Starbucks, you're a young person, okay? Trust me, you're young. The other thing is, is that every single one of us here, and I don't mean some of you, I mean all of us, we're all rich. We're not Elon Musk rich, but even the lowest socioeconomic group of people who live in Middle Tennessee, we are all wealthier than, than the vast majority of the rest of the world. I think you knew that, right? The other thing is, is all of you are powerful. You have opportunities for a flourishing future that doesn't exist for most of the rest of the world. It's all about perspective. When I got that text this morning about one of our key leaders who dies in South America, you want to know the reason he probably dies? They don't have the medical equipment that we have. He didn't have oxygen. He didn't have health care. Those are all things that cause us to say that we are powerful people. We have, we have resource. And I think all of those things combined is why this particular story is so significant to us this morning, because this young man represents something that most of us are. And I think he's asking the same questions that we really need to be asking. It's one of the most important questions you can possibly ask. What does it mean to have a fulfilling life? What do I have to do 
to be a blessed person. Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And by eternal life, it didn't just mean a future someday when I die, but what do I have to do to have a blessed and flourishing life right now? Jesus said, keep the commandments. The guy said, which ones exactly? He wants details. Jesus gives him the Ten Commandments. I mean, all the big ones. And then he says, remember to love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, I've done these things. I've done all of them. I've kept the rules. I've checked off the boxes. But isn't it fascinating to see that this young man still senses in his heart something is missing? When he heard Jesus talking, he was so compelled by something that he said, I've done these things. I've done these things. I know these things. What am I still lacking? He was searching for some kind of a higher purpose, and he's hoping Jesus can give him the one more thing that's going to tip the scales in the right direction. And I love what Jesus does next. I, it doesn't show up in the Matthew version of this story, but if you go to the Mark version of the same story, Mark says when he asked this question, Jesus looked at him. Jesus looked at him with love. He wasn't judging him. He didn't look at his potential. He didn't say, what can I really get out of this guy? He wasn't just looking at his possibilities. He wasn't just saying, what does this guy have to offer that the rest of the people don't have to offer? Mark says he genuinely loved him as he was in that moment. And he treated his question, by the way, with great respect and great seriousness and great dignity. Jesus looked at him with love. Can you see Jesus looking at you right now? What kind of eyes does he have? And then Jesus says something that pretty much we weren't expecting. If you want to be perfect, then go right now, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Wow, that's not what I expected Jesus to say. I, I did not see that one coming. Did you see that one coming? I mean, G Jesus, I just wanted to be a good guy. I, I just wanted to do some good things. I, but it's clear that you're not just asking me for something. You're asking me for everything. I mean, what do you want, Jesus? Jesus? My whole life or something? And the Bible says that when the young man heard Jesus speak these words, he was sad because, like a lot of us, he had many things. Jesus was asking him for too much. Jesus was inviting him to an unconditional surrender of everything. So let me ask you, let me ask it to you in a different way. Is there nothing Jesus doesn't want? And sometimes people hear this story, and, and I think the narrative is, is that this is Jesus' way of saying that it's really going to be hard for rich people to get to heaven. I think that's the wrong way to read this story. I, I don't really think that it's about, you know, rich people are not going to go to heaven and poor people are. That's, that doesn't even sound like Jesus. But I think what this is actually about is about what it means right now to follow Jesus in this life. I think this is a story 
about what it means to, le- to lead a holy life. I think this is a story about what it really means to love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind right now. Now, before, before we kind of come back to this story for a conclusion, I want to give you the Old Testament equivalent for what Jesus just said. And you're, I think you're going to be surprised by this verse I'm going to share with you because there's a lot of verses I could have chosen and obviously ones that would equate with both ways. But this is one that we often equate with figuring out what God's will is. In fact, I think we're going to pull it up on the screens right now. It's in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Is that up there? Okay. So Proverbs chapter 3, let me break this down for you. Trust in the Lord. Think about this for a second. What's that mean? Trust is faith. Trust is confidence. You had faith when you sat down in that chair. I didn't see any of you down on your hands and knees looking under the chair to see if it was going to hold your weight. You weren't, you weren't checking to see if the bolts were screwed in. You, 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 got, you, you just sat down. That's called faith. Believing something was about to happen. That's trust. And we are to have that faith, that trust in the Lord. How? With all your heart. Someone say all. With everything we are, with everything we have, with every fiber of our being, we are to be trusting in the Lord with unseen things from the very center, from the very core of who we are. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. So God God doesn't ask you to check your brain at the door when you become a Christian. In fact, it's interesting that the Bible always says love God with all your mind. He doesn't say love God with all of your emotions. But we also know that we are limited. We are finite. God is infinite. We are finite people, and there are some things even the best of our human wisdom cannot figure out, and it's okay. It's okay to say we don't know it all. We're not God, and so we simply say We don't just depend on what we can figure out at the end of a pencil when it comes to God. We don't just depend on what we can read in a book. We trust that God knows more than we do, that God is is better than we dream he is. He's bigger than we ever thought he could be. He's more loving. He's more faithful. He's more powerful. Amen? So we trust this God. But here's the part I want you to see. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Now, this word acknowledge is a tricky one. Now, we're talking about, when we talk about the Old Testament, we're talking about most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Most of the New Testament was written in either Aramaic or Greek. But the word acknowledge, if you look at all of your translations, it's going to have different words there. There's at least three or four words that could be used for acknowledge. And the reason is, the tricky Hebrew word is the word yada, Y-A-D-A, yada. Say yada. So you just learned a Hebrew word. Yada means to know someone in an intimate and relational way. To know someone in an intimate and relational way. That's what yada means. It doesn't mean just to know about someone, as in your head knowledge. It means to know someone personally and intimately and really, really, really know them. 
Now, I was thinking about you. I don't even know if this is relevant to you, but I was thinking about who are the sports people that you love. So I don't know if you like University of Tennessee, but let's talk for, about Peyton Manning for a second. I know some things about Peyton Manning. I know he was born in New Orleans. I know his dad's name was Archie. I know Peyton is now 45 years old. I know he played quarterback for the University of Tennessee. I know he was drafted number one by the, by the Indianapolis Colts. I know he played in four Super Bowls. I know he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I know he claims to be a Christian, and I, and I hope that he is a Christian. That's great. I know a lot about Peyton Manning, and you do too. But I don't really know Peyton I've never met Peyton Manning. And so I do not yada Peyton. I know about him, but I don't really know him. Yada is an intimate word. In fact, it's such an intimate word. Did you know that that's the word that appears most often in the Old Testament when it talks about intimate relations between a husband and a wife? Adam, yada, Eve, and Cain was born. It's interesting. Sexual relationships is also the word that yada is used for. So think about this. Think about what a powerful a statement this is. In all your ways, not just acknowledge, like as in God, I trust you. In all your ways, know God intimately. Know God personally. Know God relationally. In all of your decisions, in all of your choices, in all of your ideas, really know God. You want to know one of the problems, I think, with the American church today? And I speak as one who's from the American church. We have a lot of people who know about God. But I'm afraid that we don't have as many people who really know God. And it's not the same thing. We are to know God with more than our head knowledge, with more than our intellect but we are to pursue a deep and personal relationship with God until we come to know the heart of his son, Jesus Christ, not just to know him, but to think like him, to act like him, to, to respond like he would respond, almost like it's second nature, so that his nature becomes our nature. Because the truth of the matter is, we are never really going to know what God wants us to do. We're never, ever going to know God's will just by thinking it through. We have to really know God. In all your ways, he says, know God. And miracle of miracles is going to happen. As you and I trust God with all of our heart, refusing just to lean on our human wisdom alone, he will direct our paths. The God of the universe will actually tell you what to do. And God wants to bring all of us to some point in our relationship with him where we can completely give ourselves away. In a, think, think about the way you give yourself away in intimate relationships. That's the deepest level that God is calling us to, where we say, God, I am willing to do whatever pleases you most, whatever it means to give my all, even if I don't know what it means to give all, I am willing to do that. I'm willing to open up my hands and to let it go so that you take the steering wheel and you take complete control. And I mean complete control. And that's the ultimate question of the holy life. You want to talk about sanctification and what it means to be a holiness person? That's it. Holiness is not just keeping rules. This young man was keeping the rules. 
The question of holiness is to say, is everything given over to him? Is everything, in, in a different way to say it, under his control, including those things that we love and cherish the most? Which brings us back to this rich, young ruler, good person, moral person. Jesus says, there's just one thing you still lack. If you want to be perfect. Now, I just confused you with the word perfect. Because when you think about perfect, you probably thought about what I thought about perfect when I first read this. I thought perfect means if you want to be flawless, if you want to be a person who never makes a mistake, if you, if you want to be a person who never has bad judgment, that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not the kind of perfection that Jesus is asking of this young man. The word perfect literally means, this is really important, it means complete. It means wholeness. W-H-O-L-E-ness wholeness every piece working together just as it as it was designed to work functioning you know seamlessly the way god intended it that's what the word perfect means and god doesn't intend you to be flawless but he intends you to be perfectly aligned with his will by being completely surrendered to his love that's what holiness is let me say it to you in a slightly different way Holiness means there's not a corner of your life. There's not one iota. There's not one minuscule segment of your life that is shut off from the control of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Your business, your relationships, your career, your parenting, your attitudes, your money, it's all in his hands. This young ruler was trying to figure out, give me one more thing that's going to tip the scales, one more rule to follow, because I, I don't have the peace I'm looking for right now. I, I'm doing all those things so give me one more command that's just going to tip it over into the place where I feel completely at peace. And Jesus looked at him with love and said to him, I don't want you to do one more thing. I want you completely, wholeheartedly. We say, wait a minute, that's really not what Jesus said. He just said, go sell everything you have. That was, that was way over the top. Did you know, to my knowledge, and if I'm wrong, you come correct me after the sermon, or come correct Jeremy and Christy after the sermon. I don't know of another place in Scripture where Jesus actually used the words to someone else, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, now obviously, Jesus wasn't rich, but I, I don't know of another place where, it actually, where he actually says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. If everybody went and sold everything they had and gave it to the poor, it'd be communism. That's not really what Jesus was trying to perpetuate. 
because there was lots of rich people that followed him. There were, there were people, very wealthy people. In fact, the Bible says some of them were wealthy women who actually were following Jesus that were there to support his ministry. So Jesus doesn't ask everybody in the Bible to go and sell everything they have and give to the poor. So why did he ask it of this young man? Because Jesus knew that the heart of this young man that he loved was saying, I'm willing to obey you in everything except with my money. I'm willing to do anything you ask me to do, but don't touch my possessions. Jesus was saying, I, I, I know that, that's your blind spot. And I don't just want part of you, I want all of you. And so in this situation, out of love for you, I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to be really, really hard for you to do. But that is to say, there's not going to be a corner of your life that shut off from my control. So I'm going to ask you to do something that I know right now has your heart in a vice grip. Are you with me? Jesus wanted this young man to have wholeness. He wanted him to have freedom. He didn't want him to get... <coughs> you know, like to lose everything he had. That wasn't the purpose of Jesus saying to this. He's saying, I want everything you have. I don't just want you. I don't want your stuff. I want you. And I, I think that's the way Jesus works in all of our lives, even including mine. He doesn't just want portions of me. He doesn't want 98% of me. He doesn't want my stuff. I don't, what are you going to give to the creator of the world? You think your stuff is that big a deal? It's not really that big a deal. But your stewardship is. How you use what he's given you is really, really important. Because how you use it is an indicator of how much he has of you. And Jesus loves you too much to settle on anything less than the entire package. Hank, it's, it's kind of quiet in here right now. I, I, think, I think this is supposed to make us uncomfortable. Because when you start digging really deep, I, I think most of you here today, and if not all of you, you've given a lot to Jesus. But has it been everything? Not, not just to say to give it, but to surrender it. That's different. I want to kind of wrap up with this story. Uh, I, one of my favorite holiness preachers was a guy by the name of Dennis Kinlaw. And Dennis Kinlaw was kind of from Kentucky, and he was the president of Asbury University and the, and the seminary there for many, many years. A, a great preacher. Go YouTube, Dennis Kinlaw. But the first time that I heard Dennis Kinlaw preach in person was, was when I was at the seminary. And I was in my early 20s, and Christy and I were just kind of figuring out what we were going to do. And, and I remember sitting in the seminary chapel, listening to Dennis preach. It was the very first time in my life that I had ever heard somebody equate God's control of my life as intimacy. Now, see, I'd always, I'd always heard, or at least maybe this was my, my bad hearing, that God's control was about trying to just not let me do bad stuff or, or to be sure that I wasn't getting out of bounds. So God was like, was like the principal in the sky or something like that. 
But Dennis Kinlaw was talking and preaching, and it all rang true to me because he said, God's control in your life is about his love, intimacy in your life. And then he told this story. He said it was 1964, and my ears perked up because that was the year I was born. He said, I was teaching at, the semin- at one of our seminaries, and, and he said there was a kid who came to our campus. His name was Bruce. Bruce was about 29 at the time, which is kind of an older, you know, for someone as an older student. And he, was, he had been living in Columbia, South America. And, and, and he was intrigued by Bruce's testimony in 1964. And so he was so interested to hear more of his story, he invited him over for dinner one night with he and his wife. And Dennis said that it turned out that Bruce was a banker's son. And when he was 15 years old, somebody had given Bruce a New Testament, and Bruce read it through in like one week. And when he finished reading it in one week, he started rereading it again immediately. And his second time through the New Testament, Bruce gave his heart to Christ. And when he gave his heart to Jesus, he went down to a bookstore. I love what he did. He went and he bought a world atlas. And he started praying through that world atlas because he said, if the one that I love and loves me, if he died for the world, then I want to care about this world too. And so what part of his daily devotions is he'd pray for two pages, two countries every single day, and pray for the gospel to come into that country. And as he kept praying through that atlas day after day, there were two pages that just kept drawing his attention and his imagination, and he couldn't get away from it. And the two countries were Colombia and Venezuela. And so he started doing some research about Colombia and Venezuela, and he found out that there were primitive Indians that were living in both of those places that basically spoke the same language that were deep in the Amazon rainforest that had never, ever heard the gospel before. And so halfway through his university studies, Bruce sold everything he had, and he bought a one-way ticket to Caracas, Venezuela. And when he arrived in Venezuela, he had $72 in his pocket. And at 19 years of age, Bruce landed in Caracas. He's going through customs, and they ask, how long are you going to be here, sir? And Bruce said, permanently. Oh, really? Well, who's going to take care of you while you're Who's going to take care of your finances? Bruce said confidently, God is. And they said, could you give us his Venezuelan address, please? And Bruce said, I don't know what his address is yet. I haven't been here long enough. And the customs man was kind but very firm and said, that's honorable. That's not enough to keep you in this country. You're going to have to go back to the United States. And Bruce was just crestfallen. So they made him go, and they made him get out of the line, and they said, there's a room over here, you've got to wait. The next flight out back to the United States is not for three or four hours. And, 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 and then they let him come out to eat a dinner somewhere. And as he was sitting in that table, just praying and thinking, what am I going to do, Lord? A Latino gentleman walked up right there in that airport restaurant and said, can I sit down with you? Bruce said, of course, please join me. The man sat down and said, you're a gringo, aren't you? I mean, Bruce had like red hair, freckles, white skin. It was pretty obvious he didn't belong in Venezuela. He said, yes, I am. And the man said, in really good English, can I ask you why you're here? And Bruce just began to name these primitive Indians and how he, his heart had gone out to them and how he felt like God might be leading him to go and serve them and to help them. And, 
and, and to just make their lives better. And the guy said, well, that's a really, really good thing to do. Can I help you with that? He said, well, I don't know. Who are you? He said, well, I happen to be the personal assistant of the president of Venezuela. And that very afternoon, the president of Venezuela signed the documents that allowed Bruce to come in and actually stay in Venezuela. Now, I don't have the time to tell you the rest of the story because it's actually a pretty remarkable story. There's actually been books written now about Bruce and Bruce's life and about the impact he's had in those two countries. He is a legend today in Venezuela and in Colombia. But after a long conversation that night, sitting with Dennis Kinlaw and his wife around that table, Dennis Kinlaw said, Bruce, I just, I got to ask you, you were 19 years of age. You hadn't even finished your education. You didn't have any kind of financial support. You were totally out there on your own. You didn't even really speak the language. Why couldn't you wait? And he said, Bruce looked away. And then he slowly looked back at him across the table as if he had a secret. He wasn't sure if he should actually share or not. But then very quietly, Bruce said, I went because I had found an intimacy with Jesus that I was afraid I was going to lose if I didn't obey him with everything. And then, you know what Dennis Kinlaw said in that seminary chapel? I was sitting like right here where you're sitting. I think he looked right directly at me. And he said, do you want to know the one thing that is probably missing more than anything else in the U.S. church? Intimacy with Jesus. He said, that's what I think is missing. He said, we have all the accessories. We have all of the the things. We have all of the stuff. We all have the Bibles. We've got, we've got it all. But he said, I don't really see the intimacy. Not the kind of intimacy, he said, that God is wanting to have, where, where he's in such complete and total control over that there's not, and then he said this phrase, there's not a corner of your life shut off from the control of Jesus. And I realized that day in that seminary chapel that that's what I wanted. And I came and I came and I prayed at that altar and I said, Jesus, I thought you had all of me, but I want intimacy. And that day, I let it all go. Say, David, you, you ever regretted that? Not for a many second because in that moment of surrender I was given peace I was I didn't have all the answers but I was given such joy and peace and certainty that I was in God's hands that I knew I could do what he was calling me to do it's the same thing that Jesus was asking of that young man I don't just want part of you. 
I want all of you. He wasn't judging him. He wasn't being critical of him. He wasn't throwing him under the bus. He was saying, I love you too much for you to give me only a part of you. You want to know what I think COVID has taught us as much as anything? It's just completely removed all of the infrastructure that was propping us up. And it's caused us to go back to some basic questions not just about church, but about life. So let me ask you this. This is your personal question. And I'm not looking at you right now. Jesus is. And he's looking at you through really loving eyes. Have you given me everything? Is it all in my control. Would you be able to say, I don't even know what that looks like, but I'm, but I'm letting go. I'm trusting you with all of my heart. I'm not depending on my own understanding, but in all of my ways, by your grace, I am going to know you deeply, intimately, in complete surrender. When you're completely in, that's the measure of your holiness. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I sense your Holy Spirit here in a very intimate way. It's a sacred, holy ground. And in the quietness of this moment, would you remove every single barrier, every single fear, whatever it is that is between us and you, would you just burn it away by your fire. Cleanse us deeply at the level of our attitudes, at the level of our intentions. Give us pure hearts. And Lord, a clean heart means it's a heart that's completely surrendered to you. Take away all those things in our mind that makes us think that holiness just means keeping rules and burn something deep in us of a desire to know you, to be loved by you, to serve you with everything we have. And then let your peace roll in. Lord, you don't want to control us because you're, <coughs> it's a power play. You want control because you know that's the only way we're going to have a fulfilled life. And when we pursue anything else except for you, it's just going to be a dead end. No other security. You are the security. And so, Lord, whether they be a, a young person, a student, a single person, 
married, or even an older person who's covered a lot of ground. I just pray today that for each one that you will see them, that they will see you, and that we will all know you. What could happen here, Lord, if every person at Real Life said there's not a corner of my life that I'm not going to surrender? Thank you for joining us today. We would love for you to join us in person. Our address is 2022 East Main Street in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. If you would like to make a donation to keep our podcast ministry going, you can do so online at reallifecommunity.org. Thanks again for listening.